Sales Tuners, episode 116. Frank Schneider, CEO at Speakeasy AI. I really enjoy shared success. I really enjoy solving problems with a group of people I like who want to have fun and sharing in that win. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's sales tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host. And our weekly inspiration comes from rapper Rakim, who said, The rhymes is sportable. Microphone is portable. For any immortal man, swords is not affordable. Today, I'm joined by Frank Schneider, CEO of Speakeasy AI and former VP of sales at Creative Virtual USA, where he helped lead one of the first successful chatbot companies, securing several Fortune 500 clients. From hustling high schoolers with ColecoVision backups to selling kids on the meanings of poems, if you read any of the 31 recommendations Frank has received on LinkedIn, you'll see very quickly how great of a sales leader he really is. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 116. But now, let's get to the conversation where although I couldn't get him to rap on the show, Frank shed some light on his love for old school hip hop. Growing up in the Philadelphia area, was exposed to hip hop and breakdancing at a young age via block parties in my neighborhood, right outside my front door. The older kids who were a lot cooler and older and hipper than me were, were doing it. And I got into it at a young age. And then in Philly, you know, you're just the culture and background of that environment is hip hop and rap was on the radio right from day one. So I uh, got exposed to people like Eric B and Rakim at a young age, uh, Run DMC, Beastie Boys, EPMD. So kind of always really follow that path. Had a little radio show for a little bit in college, but was my first love of music that I can remember was was that hip hop and rap inside of the house. I remember my brother, uh, he introduced me to the Beastie Boys, the License to Ill album when I was five years old. And I listened to that thing so much because of my brother that I can still almost seeing the entire both sides of the cassette uh, by, by heart. But I need you to end the debate for me now. Yes. Who is the greatest rapper alive? Well, Black Thought is now the greatest rapper alive. Uh, and he only took the mantle for me from Rakim probably about, I think it was last December when he did a freestyle on Hot 97 that your listeners can get on YouTube. Uh, if you can listen to that freestyle and not declare him the best rapper of live. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and tell me why, because it's almost <laughs> it's almost impossible at that point. So I'm obviously biased because he's from Philly, but where he's at right now is just another plane of existence that I can't even totally comprehend. So I, I encourage people to go find him. Well, I know what I'm going to do after the show. That's perfect. I love the hip hop. So this is fantastic. <laughs> cool. Frank, as you know, in this show, we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that's led to your success. So I want to understand you know, your sales process today. And, and tell me specifically, what is Speakeasy AI and why does a typical customer actually buy from you? Right now, our mission is to just make it easier for businesses to understand and respond to their customers' needs with voice automation using AI. So people have been trying to do that for centuries, or not centuries, but decades with, with IVR and those annoying sort of automated voice prompt solutions. What makes us different is that we use something that we're patented that we call speech to intent. 
and it's a way of taking real-time audio streaming like you and I are conversing right now and turning it into an intent of something that someone wants to do or something they want to find out more about. Whereas most artificial intelligence systems transcribe it, so they're almost like a court stenographer. They're just typing that stuff out and pounding it out without any context or information around sort of the intelligent understanding of what that person said, and they're pushing it somewhere else. We're actually using voice to sort of get better, have a quick improvement cycle, and actually have a better voice conversation for customers. So why people buy from me is is always an interesting one. I find that it changes over time, and I often ask my buyers why they bought from me. So my advice to any sales reps listening on the podcast would be to earlier in your career get in that habit of asking buyers why they not just bought your product or why it sort of reached its potential, but why did you buy from me specifically? I think the biggest testament to my success is that our chief customer officer at Speakeasy AI is my friend Kyle, who Kyle was a buyer of mine. So Kyle bought probably the largest deal I'd ever sold in my career to that point in 2012 when he was at Time Warner Cable. Uh, He was the key executive and buyer, and he so helped me become a better sales rep. Uh, I definitely lean on my customers a lot to make me better at my job that I convinced him to join me in in this new adventure, which hopefully he doesn't regret. But startup life can can be a different kind of challenge. But for me, you know, trust and reciprocation in that buyer and sales rep relationship is is key. So understanding that when they're trying to solve a problem, they want the buying process to be as smooth as possible. And that means arming them to sell it to the five to seven other people they have to sell it to within their organization. So I think that tactically, what's always worked for me is getting to that point in the trust conversation quickly, where it says, what can I do to arm you to help buy this? And I feel like I would hope that most of my buyers feel like I'm, I'm on their, their team insofar as we have an initiative or a project we're trying to get out the door that's going to accomplish real-time things. The solution I have can help you get there, but let me arm you to get it sold. You, you said a lot there that I really enjoy. I'm definitely going to come back to this notion of, of arming people to help sell for you because you know there, there's, there's some debate around that, that you shouldn't do that, that you should actually try to get in front of the, of the people to have the conversation yourself. So I want to unpack that a little bit, but you, you talked about this idea of asking your customers why they bought from you. And I think that's excellent advice. I remember early in my career, you know, I was not, uh, um, I didn't go into the sales profession intentionally. I just kind of uh, stumbled into it like most people did. And I'm going to ask about your story here uh, in a moment. I had a buyer uh, buy for me. He actually asked me a question. We were at the end of the sales cycle and he said, he looked at me and said, who taught you how to sell? And I'm very young and honestly arrogant at that point. And you know, I kind of sat up in my seat, Frank. I straightened my shirt a little bit and, you know, stuck out my chest. I said, well, you know, I, I'm self-taught. And he looked at me and I kid you not, he said, well, it shows because you suck at sales. Wow. <laughs> Straight up. And then, but then he continued. He says, now look, here's the thing. I'm going to buy from you because I believe you can actually deliver on what you're saying, but you suck at sales. And I, it, it was amazing. And I, I kid you not, I, it took, it was, it was a Friday. I took the weekend. I called him on Monday and I said, Hey, really appreciate, you know, your, your directness and your candidness. Could I buy you lunch and just ask you some questions to help me improve? And to, that person has since become a mentor to mine. I keep in touch with him on a regular basis. He hasn't bought anything from me in more than 10 years, but he's still just like helping me. And now you know, I, I'm able to help him a little bit more as well. But that notion that you said of just asking your buyers why they buy from you, I think that's that's so, so good. 
Yeah, that's that. That's an incredible story. I've never heard someone. It, that's great feedback to get early in your career too. If only people would hit you between the eyes more often, I think we'd all be better off. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so you've obviously gotten a lot of feedback from from your buyers. You definitely haven't been the person you are now forever. Yeah. Take me way back. How did you how did, how did you start? Or how did you get into sales? Because you started your career in uh, as a teacher. I guess I didn't really understand when I was teaching that I was actually in sales. But, you know, jokingly, my last education, traditional education role was teaching English composition, conflict resolution, anger management, and social studies to court adjudicated teens. And boy, do you have to have some salesmanship to get them to buy into sort of analyzing a poem um, with all else (laughs) that's going on in their life. You know, if I really want to put a finger on it, I could say, the first sales gig I ever had was, gosh, this is really going to date myself, but there's a computer called the Commodore 64. Have you ever heard of this old computer back in the day that had video games on it? Uh, only because Weird Al sang about it and he said his Commodore 64 was really neato. <laughs> yes. So so I actually had one and they had these you know, five and a half inch or whatever they were, five and a quarter inch floppy drives and tons of video games, like hundreds of video games you could have for these things. Well, through a comic book ad or something like that, I bought this thing that backed up the games. And so really, you can make pirated copies of the games at that point, although technically you were quote unquote backing them up in case one of your floppies broke. So I created the catalog. I backed up something like 100 games, then I would swap games. So I had this whole sort of barter economy where I'd tell a guy, hey, you know, I'm like maybe in seventh grade, you, know, you give me this football game that I think is really good, and I'll give you this baseball game. I have the backup copy thing that can do it. And then I cre- by by the time I got to ninth grade, I did it for about two years. I probably had over a thousand games, and so I would bring into my high school this catalog of games and sell them to the older guys and say, "Hey, you know, you, you provide the floppy disk. You know, you have to you have to give me what I'm going to put it on, and depending on the game, I might charge you two bucks or five bucks or whatever." But um, so that was probably my first real sales gig <laughs> that that I ever had. I think the statute of limitations is is over, and so the Commodore folks are probably not going to come after you for that catalog of over a thousand <laughs> games. But boy, that, that's fantastic! I thought I was something burning my CDs and selling those out of the car, but uh, that's fantastic. Frank, what were some of the challenges uh, early on in your career as you made that transition over? Right, like I love the uh, comparison of teaching, right? Because you totally are selling those kids. But what were some of those early challenges you faced when you made that transition? Yeah, I, I think embracing quota is the most tangible challenge that I had. And I'll use the embrace word lightly. Uh, that scared the heck out of me. So in the beginning, when I actually made that transition, it was that, okay, here's, we expect you. I think, gosh, I think my first quota was, it was probably only $5,000 of monthly recurring upsell revenue. And then they had a product mix where they said, hey, these are two new and innovative products that we want you to make sure the customer buys. And that stressed me. I didn't want it. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, if you didn't give it to me, I'll do better. <laughs> like, like I remember the, in my head rationalizing, if they just let me go, I'll probably sell 10000 a month. But the fact that I have this number is going to be a challenge. And, and what I learned is that having a prescriptive tactical plan or path and science behind, you know, that stuff that I didn't get formal training on, Certainly, when I was studying English in college, you know, how many deals does it require you to get in the funnel 
multiplied or divided by how many days it takes to get the deal closed, how many decision makers you need to speak with, and how many of these things, you know, the whole funnel math, you know, from top of the funnel to bottom, what does that need to look like? And what does that calculus need to look like? And once I started to see that or started to analyze my deals, and, and like I said, early on, I don't, I don't remember who told me to do it, who told me to ask buyers why they were buying or how long it was taking. But I always asked early on, what does your buying process look like and how, how much time does it take? Once I realized we were having a real buying conversation and helping learn that and then sort of verticalizing that, hey, you know what, if I'm selling to a healthcare facility, and I was very fortunate in my first job that it wasn't verticalized. I was talking to all kinds of different businesses. So if it was financial services, it's going to take this long, and these are the obstacles, and these are the different compliancy people that are going to be brought in. If it was more of an IT help desk type of sale or a traditional IT company, here are the hurdles, here's how long it's going to take. And so once I realized that there was an actual science behind quota that no one told me about, now, Maybe the company that gave it to me just said, this is just what we want everyone to sell towards and just go have at it. And there wasn't as much science behind it as, as I thought there would have been. But almost my naivety helped me because I figured this number isn't just pulled out of the sky. I need to figure out how this number exists. And then once I figure out how it exists, I can figure out how to do two times or three times or four times. And I always, I always shot unrealistically high and that helped me. But man, in the beginning, I, when I first saw the quote, I, I, I wanted no part of it whatsoever. It, it's kind of fascinating to be frank, the, uh, the amount of people who still to this day have not seen or understood that, that funnel math that you're talking about, because you can totally break it down. And I love, I was sitting here shaking my head. Yes. I love that. Uh, you know, you kind of had this notion originally of like, well, this number is just completely made up. In my opinion, I like, I hate quotas for, for a very similar reason that you probably did early on. But in my opinion, quotas are self-limiting beliefs. And it, there's something interesting about if you, if you look across sales orgs uh, of some decent size, the amount of reps that get to like 96, 97% or like 101, 102%. And to me, it's because it's a self-limiting belief. Like that's the target. That's all they're trying to go after. But, but what if you, you actually set your own target of 2x? Uh, what your quota was. Then you do that funnel math to say, okay, average contract value is this. Therefore, I have to have this many deals to get that many deals. I got to talk to this week, right? And you do all that. And now you're aiming for the stars like you did. You said you were aiming two, three, four times ahead because then let's say you aim two times ahead of where you were going and you only hit 50% of that. Well, you, you, be, you hit quota. But let's say if you get three quarters of the way, now you're 150% of quota. And like, I just think that there's so much more opportunity if people thought about the sales uh, process a little bit more. Yeah, and I was very lucky, Jim, that that first sales gig, I don't think it was right out of the gate, but I remember within one iteration of the comp plans, maybe it was the second year they tried to be more sales focused for the farmers, I had an accelerator. And the first time I saw an accelerator, I was like, oh, well, that's the quota. Like, the quota <laughs> exactly. Is, wait, what What do I get paid the most at? That's the quota. Like, what, why would you even look at anything to the left of that far right bucket? If you want great talent. If you want, to your point, to have sales reps not self-limit themselves by the quota, um, tactically, you know, if you're a rep, you need to have accelerators in your plan. And if you're a manager and you don't, you're just, you're just selling your whole team short for sure. Completely agree. I mean, like in sales, what you incentivize is what gets focused on. Uh, that, that, that has to be there. So, you know, you, you mentioned um, once you started to figure all that out, you just started asking your buyers, like, what does it look like to sell to you? What does the sales cycle typically look like? How many people are, how forthcoming, Frank, were your buyers uh, when you were asking those questions? So I would directly ask, 
and get answers. And that was probably a surprise. So I would say, hey, listen, so, you know, have you ever bought something of this size before? You know, do you often make purchases like this or approve projects like this? Uh, yes, yes. You know, we've done other projects like this. You know, when we did our server architecture investment. It was very similar to this. Okay. Um, did you buy it alone or did someone buy it with you? And I was pretty direct about it. And I think those are more direct questions than saying, you know, can you really afford it? And why wouldn't you buy or why wouldn't you sign? I think whenever I've done the sales training classes early in my career, it was like, find all these objective, objection questions and here are the counters for them. And for me, it was more, what's your target date to go live with this thing? Okay, the target date is March. Okay, well, so then help me understand how I get you there. And you know, I, I have a thing I say often to customers is, I want to make sure if there's homework that I control, I do my homework. And maybe that's the teacher in me. So give me as much homework as possible. And if you can shift something to me that makes your life easier during this process, that's fine. And sometimes they would be not forthright, like especially when you get to the decision maker thing. So if I'm saying, hey, when you bought these before, who else had to sign off on it? Sometimes it's like, let me worry about that, especially early in my career. It's like, okay, well, then fine. You know, I'm, I'm not going to hammer you on that one. You know, and, and maybe for my manager, it would be, well, find out who the ultimate decision maker is. Well, I got to find out. I got to get on more calls and figure that out because he's not going to just tell me outright. So I got to figure out who, who else is in the, in the mix. Early in my career, I was exposed to a competitive scenario where I was selling to uh, a super large sneaker apparel brand. Uh, I'll keep them nameless just in case the people I know that I sold to there are listening to this. But one of my competitors came in, and I remember you said unpacking later, arming someone as opposed to selling directly to the person. So if you're selling to the right person, you're asking those direct questions in the organization, some people will be more forthright than others, right? And because I've primarily done enterprise sales in my career, I'm not often selling to the C-suite. So at Verizon Wireless, I'm not talking to their CEO. He's just not buying anything is the reality. And anyone who tells you that, that he is, you know, he might see the the paperwork come down his his trail at some point, but it's divisional president. It's just it's too big. He's not buying anything. So that's the world I'm used to. So at this large sneaker apparel brand, uh, the person forwarded him an email from one of my competitors and said, "See, this email went to the CEO, and the CEO is famous. If I said his name, you would say, oh, I probably read a book by him.' So, and the 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 email was kind of like classic challenger sale done poorly. This this fresh hot rep said, "All right, I'm going to take a picture of this person's website. I'm going to tell them all the places where I can help them, you know, kind of mark it up, and I'm going to send it directly to the CEO and say, okay, now let me sell you something." So of course that just pissed the CEO off. The CEO off forwarded it to the person who's the real buyer internally at the company at the sneaker apparel line and said, "Whatever we do, you're never going to buy from this company." And they just got blacklisted by the CEO. Wow. Some people are really into that methodology, you know, and I, believe me, I've read Selling to Vito, um, where you kind of fax CEOs at HP and things like that. And, and I know plenty of Fortune 500 CEOs, well, not know, I've met plenty of Fortune 500 CEOs. There, there's just, there's a balance and there's an art to it where, where you, you don't sort of hop up the food chain and escalate. So going back to the forthright or how forthcoming buyers have been in that process. I think the hardest part has been when it comes around the politics of who knows what and who has decision making. That's the only time it gets hard. But I've I've found that it's been incredibly refreshing or people have been very open about timelines. People have been very open to me when I've asked you, how long does it take you to buy something like this? Um, I get that answered almost every time, which is kind of crazy to me. Well, I, I found too, a very, something very similar. Like if they answer those questions, right? 
you can tell it's almost like a buying signal because they want to let you know. They want to help you understand what, it's, what it needs to happen to sell to them. If they're kind of like wishy-washy or don't want to tell you, it, again, you should take that as a sign. It's like, uh, I, I maybe missed some steps here. Maybe there's something I still need to, to do. So I think it's great. Well, so with that notion, Frank, you talked about having to arm people to help them sell for you. Uh, talk to me more about that. Like, How are you equipping them with the information? How do you how do you put the right stuff in front of them, I guess? Or how do you know you've given them enough? Sure. If you want to get in that, you know, I, I, I think it's Jill Rout. She always says the commercial insight circle. You know, there, there's there's this world of people that you might not see the clicks on Marketo or HubSpot, or you might not see them actually like your content. But there's a world of buyers out there who are trying to figure out what they need for their budgetary cycle for the next year, what 10 projects they're going to get done. And they're trying to prioritize the top three out of those 10. And they're reading, and you have to figure out where they're reading, who they're reading, and what they're looking for. And most of the time, they're looking at what their peers are looking at. So for me, it's always been centered around, you know, there's a lot of a lot of information about account-based marketing, but it's almost account-based buying too and trying to connect like buyers to like buyers and then getting out of the way. So I have one brand that I'm really comfortable with in retail that I have become so connected to this brand. And I kid you not, I've known them since 2011. I have not closed a deal with them yet, but they come to every seminar I have, if I have like a CEO round, a CXO roundtable, you know, with like CIOs talking about artificial intelligence, they'll come to it. Um, if I have some kind of seminar on digital strategy, they'll come to it, you know, and usually I'll, I'll set up like a small little venue where it's invitation only like 30 people and it's mostly buyers and we'll do it in New York and maybe do a Broadway show after. So you got to have some sort of sizzle, but that brand, I connect with other brands all the time. And if, if you can sort of remove the idea that, okay, I'm going to connect this telco company with this retail brand because I'm trying to sell to the telco company because the telco company has the same digital strategy things in mind that the retail brand does. And the retail brand hasn't bought to me, but the DNA of them trying to figure out here are the problems that we share and here are the things we're trying to solve. And that connection, a lot of times, arms them in ways that aren't the, here's a white paper related to artificial intelligence that's going to get someone to sign off on the project. Sometimes it's not that vanilla or it's not that, hey, here's here's this actual, here's the, pa- here's the paper that marketing wrote that's going to tip the, the weight of the scales. Um, I've always been, it's better when you can connect someone who's actually bought your product, right? That's that's the super win. Hey, you know, go visit this, this company that has our chatbot and you're thinking about buying our chatbot. That's easy. But for me, the thing that maybe not everyone does is I try to have relationships with brands, whether or not I'm selling to them, and then connecting those brands to other brands who are thinking about similar problems can help sort of bring credibility back to me tangentially and and help customers understand, hey, here's the things I'm, I've, I should be thinking about that I didn't even realize. And this is going to better arm me for my conversation internally to get this project out the door and buy Frank's product or buy Frank's solution. And I know you said you mostly have dealt with the enterprise space, but I want to make sure everyone listening knows that that stuff works at every level as well. It it truly does. And when you can start to be that connector, right? You're opening yourself up for so much more than the the current job that you have. That stuff will stick with you for a career. You talked about how uh, one of the the buyers that bought from you early on at Time Warner is now your chief customer officer. That's the stuff that really can advance your career if 
you take the time to invest in it. Frank, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, and I hope we get the chance to continue this conversation at another point. But uh, I want to be cognizant of your time, and I want to thank our sponsors. So when we come back, it'll be time for the money round. You don't go away. And sales tuners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Costello is pioneering the way companies build and execute sales playbooks. The platform helps sales reps prepare for calls, ask timely questions, tell relevant stories, and sync insights back to their CRM, all while showing managers and reps the gaps in every single deal so they can work them together to move them forward. With Costello, sales leaders can identify what's working on the front line and replicate success across their entire team. Learn more and see a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. We're back and it's time for the money round. Frank, are you ready for the money round? I am as ready as I can be, but it's a little bit daunting, but I'm ready. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Being a teacher as my first job without question is the thing I wouldn't change. I find a lot of people who do the opposite career flip, they start in business or start in one segue and then go, I think I'll teach at the end. I'm so glad I taught before I had kids when I was young and energetic. And all that stuff I learned about people is what's translated well into any career stop I've had since. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? Find out who my ideal buyer is for the product I'm selling and try to get someone in that circle who I may know through a friend or a connection to write my playbook. Every sales job I've had, they've handed me the sales playbook or they had me read strategic selling, selling to veto, customer-centric selling, the challenger sale, and then figure out a playbook, or it's become from a product marketer. I want it to come from the buyer. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose? It's funny because athletically, it's I hate to lose. It definitely is athletically, I hate to lose. But professionally, it's I love to win. Winning is such a shared thing. You know, I had the sales manager in the past tell me losing is a shared thing and it should be a shared thing and it helps you heal. But gosh, nothing like winning as a team. There's nothing like when you go through a process and people have all had, had a stake in it and have helped contribute and you have it. Um, but I would say it's been a change. I would say that before I was 30 years old, I was probably more hate to lose. What's a book, Frank, that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Multiple times, every probably year or two, I read Catcher in the Rye. Recommending to others, I'm always re- recommending Drown by Juno Diaz or anything by Juno Diaz. And as far as for sales, I really like uh, Biology that a lot of people haven't read. Buy spelled B-U-Y, which is the psychology of why you buy and how people subliminally sell you stuff. Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Frank's suggestion of Catcher in the Rye or any of the other suggestions for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book for Catcher in the Rye. Frank, what's currently at the top of your bucket list? Take the family, uh, which is my wife and three children. And maybe my mom will visit a little bit too and my mother-in-law, but and live in Porto which is a port town in Portugal for a year. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Go coach some team of some sort in an organization or a team that you might not otherwise do, like go coach fifth grade girls soccer. Go volunteer and go serve or actually go teach GED classes at your local community college. But do something in one of those folds and it will make you a better professional. 
If you want to tell Frank he's wrong about Black Thought being the greatest rapper alive, you can find him on LinkedIn at Frank Schneider 3. After I listen to the 10-minute freestyle he mentioned, I'm just going to say to you, good luck. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, ask direct questions about the sales process. Buyers that are interested and want to actually buy are more forthright with information than you may think. They want you to know what is going to happen, but it's your responsibility to ask, and you need to be direct about it. For instance, the last time you bought something like this, what did that process look like? Did you buy alone or were other people involved? How long did it take? Knowing these details can help you understand not only what's real, but also how to accurately forecast your pipeline. Number two, arm your buyers to help them buy. No, I don't mean with white papers or any collateral that marketing has put together. I mean understanding what problems they are actually trying to solve, use cases they're thinking about, or concerns they have about selling something internally. Then, connect them with customers who have bought from you in the past. From a prospecting standpoint, you may even be able to host a dinner or an event where you can get multiple buyers in the same room that have similar problems and let them talk about it with each other. Building these relationships when you're not trying to sell them anything is even better long term. Number three, know your funnel math equation. It still ceases to amaze me how many people don't know the math behind their quota or pipeline, so much that I actually created a workbook for you that you can find at salestuners.com roadmap. It's quite simple. What is your average contract value? How many of those deals will it take you to meet your quota, whether monthly, annually, or quarterly? What's your winning percentage on opportunities you create? How many prospects do you have to talk to in order to create an opportunity? Once you know this formula, you can put your plan together to 2x or even 3x your output. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me, at SalesTuners, or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right, next week is Christmas, but I'll be here with a special episode for you. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there.